Amen. You may be seated. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Good morning. It's good to see you. Let's get this started right. Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. Very good. Is Easter hope naive wish projection? When we say Christ is risen, Christ is risen indeed. are we just foolish? Uh, here's a term, first time I'd ever heard it was this past week. It comes from a detractor uh, to Christianity. Are we foolish? Jesoids. Uh, by the way, he's a lecturer at Harvard. A diversity and tolerance lecturer. Are we foolishly gullible? Dupes. Hoping against hope in a world that's cruel, nasty, and brutish. Well, to answer that question, I want to take us not to the Gospels, as is oftentimes the case during this time of the year. I want to take us back to the Old Testament. I want us to take us back to the dark days of Israel's newly minted monarchy. Back to where I believe we do find the answer to this question. Are we engaged in just a bit of naive wish projection when we believe and when we proclaim that our Christ wins? When we say Christ is risen. risen To 1 Samuel chapter 11 we go. Turn in your Bibles. To Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 11. And as you arrive at that passage, give your attention to the reading of God's holy powerful, infallible, inerrant word. For Samuel 11. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us and we'll serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you. Then I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all of Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there's, there's no one to save us, we'll give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, And Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they're weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. The Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words. And his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. And when he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun's hot, you shall have salvation. And when the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad 
And therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we'll give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord, Yahweh, has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And there they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. The word of God for the people of God. There are three points here from this text that I think give us our answer to the question are we just naively wish projecting when we think that our God through the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ wins? The three answers are uh, we need to notice that we have an arrogant enemy. An arrogant enemy. And then we will look and we will see that we have this mighty rushing spirit. And then lastly, we have a renewed kingdom. First, let's look at an arrogant enemy. We see that in verses 1 through 3. And in this first section of chapter 11, we've got an opportunity, and this is our opportunity. We've got the opportunity to face honestly, openly, clearly the reality that God and God's people, we have enemies. There are enemies aligned against the God of Israel. There are enemies aligned against Old Testament Israel. There are enemies aligned against the Israel of God today. There are enemies of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, I, I, think, I think that when we say that you really can't be a Christian pessimist, that a Christian pessimist is an oxymoron, that we can't say that if we truly believe in the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ and that that resurrection power is at work in our lives and is at work in the world, that when we say that, that is not to say that we don't believe there are such a thing as enemies. It's not to be naive and just say, oh, all is completely well. There are no enemies against God's people. There aren't those who will do harm to us. There are, as this text makes so clear. As I was thinking through this, I, I thought about, you know, uh, and you've probably seen YouTube videos of, of people in wildlife uh, reserves and, you know, they're driving along the road and some of them foolishly get out of their cars to start taking pictures of Wildlife, and there was one in China, I think it was two or three years ago, a girl, a, a lady gets out of her car, and all of a sudden she's taking a picture this way, and all of a sudden from her backside, a tiger gets her, mauls her, kills her. We, we hear stories of people foolishly backing themselves up against the compound, and then behind them there's a wild animal, and they're wanting to take a what? A selfie. 
foolish, naive to the dangers of the predators all around them. This text reminds us that there are real human predators against the people of God. And specifically in this text, a very, very wicked Ammonite king by the name of Nahash. And oh, what a vain and wicked man he was. First of all, he was the king of the Ammonites. He was the king of a people who came from the incestuous union between Lot and one of his daughters. He's a king of a people that God had actually directed his Old Testament people, Israel, as they were about to enter into the promised land. God had directed his people to treat these Ammonites kindly. Not to be aggressors against them. And yet here, the Ammonites are most certainly the aggressors against God's people. There's a Dead Sea Scroll account that in this particular account, in this particular version, uh, we're, we're told of what Nahash and the Ammonites had been doing right up to this point. They had been doing the same sort of thing that they're threatening against Jabesh Gilead. They had been doing it east of the River Jordan to the tribe of Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh. They had been attacking them. They had been gouging out the eyes of the men. And if that account, that Sea Scroll account, is true, maybe what's happening is there's a contingent of Israelites from, from Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh who've been fleeing from the Ammonites. They fled across the river Jordan, and they are finding refuge in, in, in Israel. And they're finding refuge in Jabesh Gilead, just south of the Sea of Galilee and on the western side of the Jordan and the Ammonites are in hot pursuit. What a vain and cruel enemy Nahash was. He taunts them, doesn't he? He taunts them and he, he actually even gives them time. Go ahead. Try to, try to find yourself a deliverer. As if. He taunts them. He toys with them as a, as a cat does sometimes with a small mouse. He's toying with them. Uh, one commentator quotes Joseph Stalin at this point. Another very vain and cruel man. Stalin once said, to choose the victim, to prepare the blow with care... To slake an implacable vengeance. And then to go to bed. There's nothing sweeter in the world. That's the spirit of, of Nahash. And what does this tell us Christians? It tells us God's people have always had enemies. Jesus tells us the same thing, doesn't he? What does Jesus tell his disciples in John chapter 15? You've heard these words. Hear them again. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world, what? Hates you. You have, we have, enemies in Sri Lanka. 
We have enemies in North Carolina. We have enemies in our offices. We have enemies at school. And sometimes those enemies include people who have been our friends. But once we began to show that we are truly following the Lord Jesus Christ, evidencing real faith, what happens? The hatred comes. I mentioned that lecturer at Harvard. His name's Tim Wise, the one who, of course, speaks of much diversity and tolerance. Out of that same mouth has said that we, you and I, anybody who truly believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Scriptures and seeks to find our, our morality based upon the commandments of God, he, he says that all of us should be mocked and run out of the, the public square. And he just represents what you know is true. He's just representing this growing tribe of haters, of people around, all around whose opposition to evangelical Christianity has become mainstream. And it's not just like on campuses of Harvard. And it's not just among uh, liberal elites of the Northeast. It's a mainstream opposition that is working its way through company after company after company. It's a mainstream opposition that's working its way through city council after city council after city council. And if you don't know that, you're not paying attention to the news. So I get it. It's so easy to be a Christian pessimist. But again, the Nahashes of the world and the Ammonite mindset will not have the final word. For God works his salvation, does he not? For Christ is risen. Christ is risen and God works his salvation out in this chapter in a wonderful way. Notice verses 4 through 11, we have the mighty rushing spirit. And as we look at these verses, we have an opportunity to acknowledge the source of our salvation. Yes, Saul rallies Israel to come to the rescue of Jabesh Gilead. By the way, um, the people of Jabesh Gilead. That's interesting. Jabesh Gilead had not rallied to a call to arms in the book of Judges. And yet now Israel is going to rally to a call to arms on behalf of Jabesh Gilead. Yes, the Israelites have an amazing victory over Nahash and the Ammonites. But how? The way these verses are structured, the answer is clear. The, 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 the verses are, are structured in a way to give answer to the, the dismissive question of those worthless fellows of chapter 10. Uh, in, in, in chapter 10, we have those who don't want this country bumpkin to be their king... And, and they say, how can this man save us? Well, chapter 11, the author structures the verses to show us the answer to that question. Verse 6 
is really the pinnacle. Verse 6 is the hinge. Everything leads to it and everything flows out of it. Here, verse 6 again. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words. The Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words. How can this man save us? Answer, by the Spirit of Almighty God. By the rushing of the Spirit upon him, giving him the courage, giving him the leadership, giving him the the power to defeat such a wicked foe, such a vain and wicked king and people. You see, it's not so much that Israel had a king. It's not so much that their king was a tall and impressive guy, even if he was from the country. The reason the Israelites won is because God rushed in. Because God rushed in. Because God is the king of salvation. No other. There's a story about this time of year that I like to tell my students. It's about what is known as the Battle of Vienna. It's about uh, the Ottoman Turk Empire uh, seeking to to gain all of Europe by attacking, destroying Vienna as the gateway into Europe. The Viennese knew that the Turks were coming. They had come before. The Viennese had entered into an alliance with the Poles. And that was a very, very wise thing to do. For when the Turks besieged Vienna... Coming to their aid was good King Jan Sobieski and the Poles. And Jan Sobieski and the Poles came crashing down upon the besieging Turks surrounding Vienna on their horses. Here comes a bunch of Poles with wild types of uh, of headdresses and armor and swords riding on horses flowing down upon the Turks, and they routed them. And Europe to this day is not controlled completely by Islam because of that. The reason I tell you that story is the words of Jan Sobinski. Jan Sobinski, using the words of Julius Caesar, but modifying, modifying them, said, We came, we saw... God conquered. We came, we saw, God conquered. Saul conquered a terrible enemy known as Nahash. But it wasn't Saul. It was God working through Saul. But think of this, Christian. Yes, Nahash was a terrible enemy. Wicked, vain. But your king is not Saul. And your king has defeated far greater enemies than Nahash. Your king is King Jesus. And he has defeated sin and death and all forces of evil. Your king has defeated and is defeating all his and our enemies. 
He is the source of salvation. It is His salvation that He brings. And He is bringing His salvation. And He's doing it one heart at a time. And He is working out His glorious salvation. For Christ is risen. How do we apply that? Our trust must reflect this. Yes, God will use others. As God has used dear people in China, as God has used dear folk and brothers and sisters in Spain, as God is using dear brothers and sisters in Pakistan, yes, God will use his people in the working out of his salvation, but it is his salvation. And he is the one who's doing the work through them. Your hope is not in man. Your hope is not in me. Your hope is not in a missionary. Your hope is not in your brother and sister that's so strong in the Lord beside you. Your hope is in their God. Your hope is in the Lord of salvation. Your trust must reflect this. Your thinking must reflect this. There is no place for you or I to take credit. All credit, all glory belongs to God and Him alone. The reformers all had that banner, and it's a banner, we should fly, you should fly. Sola gratia. Salvation is by what? Grace alone. And your God is gracious. Your thinking must reflect this as well. He will conquer. Not he might, he will conquer. Yes, his way. Yes, his timing. Sure. But the outcome is certain. One more application is the application made in the text itself. For lastly, we see a renewed kingdom in verses 12 through 15. And in these verses, we see an opportunity for repentance, renewal, and rejoicing. You see, the Israelites do what is right, don't they? In responding to the salvation that the Lord has brought through Saul. Saul does what is good when, they, when they're so excited because Saul has just been victorious that they want to now go find those rascals, go find those worthless fellows, as the end of chapter 10 says, to put them to death. Because how dare they say something against this guy who in the spirit of the Lord has just routed the Ammonites. Saul does what is right, doesn't he? He says, no, 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 no. Let's not do that. Samuel does what is right, calling the people to renew. The kingdom is renewed. Yes, Saul is made earthly king. But their renewal, brothers and sisters, at least for this moment... Their renewal was to the king of kings. It was to Yahweh. See the verses again. Not a man, verse 13, but Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord, Yahweh, has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord. 
in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. They did what was right. They did what was right. And in doing so, they are repenting of their sin of rejecting God and rejecting his kingship, at least for the moment. Brothers and sisters, every deliverance is an opportunity to repent. Every deliverance is an opportunity to renew covenant. Every deliverance, every every act of grace that you experience is an opportunity to worship the God who gave that to you. It's an opportunity to worship the God who works out his salvation in and for you. And if this was the case with Old Testament Israel, with a deeply flawed Savior King by the name of Saul, how much more so is it for us who are Christians whose King and Savior is Jesus Christ? And week after week, week after week, Sunday after Sunday, after Sunday, after Sunday, we are given opportunity to do just this. We are given opportunity to repent. We're given opportunity to renew covenant. We are given opportunity to rejoice in the Lord. And our attendance to these opportunities is a measure of what we truly think of our salvation. It's a measure of what we truly think of the kingdom. It's a measure of what we truly think ultimately of our king. He who has ears, let him hear. Let us examine our hearts. Let us examine our priorities. One final application. Let me take you back to verse 4. The people of Jabesh Gilead send out their messengers. And they had said throughout Israel, it seems as if they go to one place first. Verse 4. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matters, matter in the ears of the people. And all the people wept aloud. If you've been a keen observer of Old Testament history to this point, that place, Gibeah, is a dark place. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go back this afternoon to Judges chapter 19, to the lowest place in Israel's history. When Israel was no better, if not worse, than Sodom and Gomorrah. And the atrocity and the wickedness and the evil and the darkness occurred in Gibeah. See the point here. God 
can go to the darkest of places and shine his light. God can go to the darkest places and bring hope and light and salvation. God can bring his salvation out of the darkest places. He did so with Gibeah. For out of this wicked, vile place comes the king that defeats the Ammonites. God did so with Gibeah. He did so with the cross and dark tomb. And he can do so in your life as well. You see, the darkness that you find in your life, in yourself, it's not the final word. The brokenness and sinfulness of your own life, it's not the final word. Your besetting sin that you keep battling and keep falling back into and keep battling and feel guilty about and keep battling and keep feeling guilty about, your besetting sin is not the final word. Your insurmountable obstacle that you've prayed about and prayed about and prayed about, and it's still there. It's not the final word. In your darkest, most cruel, and vain, and wicked enemy, he or she is not the final word. Your cause is not hopeless. If God could bring out his salvation out of Gibeah, he can bring out his salvation out of the darkness you're experiencing. And you're experiencing some. Every single one of you. And God will bring about his salvation. For you see, there is a mighty rushing wind that the resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, sins. For Christ is risen. Christ is risen and he is sending his wind of his spirit into the darkest of places. He is working out his salvation even out of Gibeah. And he is doing so as far as the curse is found. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Glorious God of salvation. We read these old and ancient stories. And on first blush, they seem so barbaric and old and out of sync with who we are and then yet if we would but examine our lives and examine this world in which we find ourselves they speak to us and the word that these words speaks to us today is hope there is salvation you are 
God of salvation. You work out your salvation, and your salvation is complete and glorious, and you are unfolding it in all manner of ways. Help us to be a people who not just for a brief season rejoice, repent, and renew covenant with you, but may we be a people who are constantly doing that because your spirit has been breathed out upon us and is at work in and through us. For we are those who believe that Christ is risen. risen So help us now, Father, to live that way. For we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I had to turn...